Masechet Gitin Daf Mem Zayin. We'll have two more Mishnayot today in the series of uh, enactments that the rabbis made me Pnei Tikkun HaOlam. HaMocheret Asmo Be'et Banav Legoyim En Podin Oto. Aval Podin Tabanim Lachar Mitat Avihen. If someone sells himself and his children as slaves to non-Jews, so now they are taken by these non-Jews, we do not redeem them. Even though we saw in the previous Mishnah that it's a great mitzvah to redeem someone who is uh, taken captive, or taken up, uh, taken as a slave. In this case, we don't because he he was not taken against his will. He sold himself into slavery, uh, so he put himself in that position. So we're not going to help him um, while he is alive. We don't have help his children either while he's alive. However, after the fa- that father dies, and now it's just the children that are there, then we do uh, uh, redeem them. Because there's no reason reason to penalize the sons they didn't do anything wrong anything wrong their father is the one that took them with him into slavery and so therefore that would just fall into a regular uh case of redeeming of someone who's captive or someone who's a slave to non-jews uh, it's not good for them to be there first of all because they're slaves and also because um they're living among non-jews and they'll learn the idol their their idolatrous ways okay uh, but for the father himself, we're not going to redeem them because we actually want to discourage anyone from doing that. And the danger is if we keep redeeming them, then this person will go sell himself into slavery. He'll get into debt, sell himself, and then everybody will redeem him and basically pay his debt that way. So we don't want to encourage that type of terrible behavior. Uh, limits the Mishnah and says that's only if someone does, uh, sold himself a second and third time. But if he did it just once, he's down and out and he couldn't pay back uh, a loan and he got taken uh, taken captive or, or uh, sold himself, had to sell himself into slavery. If it happened one time, so then we, we're, we're going to help him out. Poor guy. But if he does this repeatedly, then that shows he's that this is just his, um, his MO. He uh, takes loans, doesn't pay them back. Um, and says, oh, don't have to worry about it. The community will raise money to redeem me. So in that case, only if he does it repeatedly, then we don't. Now we're going to have a series of three stories about different people that um, sell themselves into slavery. Hanhu bene so there's people that lived in this place they borrowed money from non-Jews and then they didn't have enough money to repay so these uh, the lenders uh, came and seized them and took these Jews as slaves so they came to Ravuna it's not clear who came because they already are in slavery but maybe they sent a message or their uh, relatives came to Ravuna and said can you do can you help us raise money for, from the community to help redeem them and get them out of out of this uh, slavery to non-jews and Ravuna says I'm sorry I I wish I could help, but I have to follow the law in the Mishnah that says someone who sells himself into slavery, slavery, we do not redeem them. But another rabbi who was there said, hold on, Rav Huna, you taught us that um, the, this halacha, this uh, tikkun, takana only applies if someone does it, sells himself two and three times. But if the first time, if it's only one time, then we should redeem him. So how come you don't apply that and redeem him? And he said, 
Ravuna said, these people, this community here that lives in Bemichseh, they always do this. They do this repeatedly. This is their way of doing business. They'll, they'll take, they'll borrow too much, not have, and not plan not to pay so that they can, uh, and, and sell themselves so that the community will come redeem them and pay their loan. So, no, these, these fall into the category of repeated offenders, and we are not going to help them. So, a certain guy, he sold himself to be a gladiator. Okay, um, I guess he's a, a, a rough guy, tough guy, and he, uh, um, he was willing to be a gladiator. Being gladiator is very risky. Um, if you win a lot, you can be a hero and, you know, all the, everybody will, uh, will, will, uh, uh want to be your friend and you could be, uh, you know, a real, um, a rock star. Um, but more likely is that you will get, uh, seriously harmed or killed. Um, so this is not a good situation, but he might have had to because maybe he was in debt. And uh, so he had to sell himself to be a gladiator. Anyway, and so he came to the Biyame and said, listen, I'm taken by the gladiator. Well, I give myself to the gladiators, but can you uh, raise money to redeem me? Now it says B'Ameh said to him, but it sounds like actually B'Ameh is speaking to the other rabbis first, because we're going to have a conversation uh, between B'Ameh and the other rabbis. So B'Ameh said, listen, well, there is a Mishnah, and the Mishnah says, uh, someone who sells himself, we do not redeem him. But if, uh, if the guy dies, and, um, and the sons, we do redeem the sons because of Kilkul, because we don't want the sons to be assimilated. So you see that uh, we, uh, although we um, don't want a guy to be a repeated offender, but on the other hand, we also do worry about a person being going um, and being assimilated. So he says, in your case, he, uh, the, where, where likely by saying remaining, a, uh, a gladiator, this will lead to your death. Um, so in that case, we make an exception to the rule. Even though generally we do not redeem someone who sells himself, if the result of selling himself is going to be that he may likely die, then we do raise money for, to redeem him. There's no point in like, you know, showing him a lesson. Hey, if you do this again, well, then we're not going to redeem you because there's not going to be again for this guy. So, you know, he was in a tough situation. He was down and out. And even though he sold himself, if he's going to be killed, we should redeem him. Amru le Rabbanan Rabbi Ameh. Now, even though Rabbi Ameh was making an exception to the Mishnah to help out this guy, the other rabbi said, hold on, you don't know the character of this per person. He is a, a rebellious Jew. He goes and eats non-kosher animals, um, and he doesn't care about it. So he's not worthy of being redeemed. See, this is like in the... Uh, previous story with the daughters of Rav Nachman, right? There's a test to see if someone is someone worthy of uh, the community uh, getting involved and redeeming them. But Rabbi Ameh is very uh, uh, generous. And he says, he wants to be done the chafsechut. And he says, okay, I know he eats non-kosher. I accept that. But maybe he's doing it because of his appetite. He can't help it. He smells this non-kosher food. 
and uh, he can't help himself. He's not doing it to be rebellious against Judaism. He just can't control his desire. So it's not good, but it's not so bad. And so we should still redeem him. So the other rabbi said, no, you don't understand. This guy, we've seen a lot of times, there's kosher food and non-kosher food, side by side, same food, no problem. And he can easily fill himself up and have a good meal with the kosher food, but he, Davka, goes and eats the non-kosher food because he wants to be rebellious against Judaism. This is not a good guy. He's not worthy. And then Rabbi Ames says back to the guy who, who sold himself to be a gladiator and says, sorry, um, you, have to, you have to leave. Uh, they, they're, they're not allowing me to redeem you. I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to find every loophole to uh, find merit for you, but you know, you acted this way. You sell yourself and you, uh, you go against Judaism. You're rebellious. Uh, so, sorry, there is no redemption for you. Third story. So Resh Lakish sold himself to be a gladiator. Now the previous stories were just about some people. Now we're talking about Resh Lakish, one of the greatest sages, the student and colleague and brother-in-law of Rabbi Yochanan. Uh, we know Resh Lakish, before he became a rabbi, this other st- famous story, that he himself was a gladiator. And in fact, he saw Rabbi Yochanan bathing. He saw Rabbi Yochanan was so beautiful. He thought it was a woman. And Resh Lakish jumped in uh, to, to, to get her. It turned out to be him. And then uh, they, uh, Resh Lakish, Rabbi Yochanan says, hey, if you will come and be a rabbi, use your strength uh, to learn Torah, then I'll let you marry my sister. And he does. So... Reshakish in the past was a gladiator. It seems that this story is about Reshakish when he was young, back when he was a gladiator, and he sold himself to be a gladiator. Makes more makes sense. Okay, so he took with him, he sold himself to be a gladiator, but he had a good reason to it, as we'll see. Um, he took a bag and a stone inside the bag. I know there's a tradition that on the final day of a captive's life, a gladiator's life, before they kill him, um, they will they ask him, what do you want? And they give him anything. Like today, someone's on death penalty. They say, what's your last meal? Ask anything you want and we will give it to you. Why, 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 why do people do that? Why, do, why would the captors be nice to the captive and give him whatever he wants, fulfill his last wish, so that they'll, so that the, so that the the captive will forgive the captors, right? Even the captors who are taking someone hostage and killing them, or gladiators, and who are who are throwing someone into the ring uh, to be uh, mauled by a lion or whatever. Even they care about their own olam uh, haba and uh, the guilt factor. And it says, okay, you know, listen, we're going to be nice. Anything you want for your last will, and that way you'll you'll uh, die. Uh, more easily and forgivingly, and won't, we won't feel like we have your, the, your blood on your hands. Okay, interesting. So, so now, it's his final day. Listen, we're throwing you into the ring. There's no way you're going to survive this. Um, you are going to die, but what's your last wish? Reshakish has an unusual request. He says, I want to tie uh, all of you up and have you sit, and I want to hit you one and a half times. 
right? Not a big deal. I'm just gonna, you know, I don't know, slap you um, uh, one and a half, one and a half times uh, each. So for some reason they agreed to this and they uh, agreed them to to have themselves tied up. So the captors, they each um, uh, tied themselves. So he has each of them tied up. Now the thing is, he said, I'm going to slap you. They see that he's holding a little bag. So they think he's just going to take this, you know, this cloth bag and, and, uh, and slap him uh, lightly. So they didn't think it was going to be anything. They didn't know that there was a stone in it. And so, in fact, the Shakish was... A very strong person. He's a serious gladiator. He's trained in the in this weapon, and uh, he knocks them each on their head, and uh, he actually kills each one of them um, uh, till they're right. Their souls leave them. The problem is that when he kills one, the other ones are all there. They're like, "Well, you killed that guy. They're not going to let him." So here's what he did. The Shakish then gritted his teeth and said, like that." as if he's getting angry at the at the, the person he just hit to saying what are you laughing at me you think that was the laughing matter by saying that he's um he's uh showing that the guy's still alive right he hits him and says oh you th- you think that was fun um as if the guy's laughing at him really the guy's dead um but by Lakish, by talking to him like that as if he's still alive so the other people will think that that guy's still alive and so they're not gonna they're gonna just sit there and let, let themselves be hit also akati pashlach gabe and uh, he said, oh, you think that was funny? I'm still going to hit you another half a time. And so the half a time sounds like it'll be less. And so Reshakish uh, is making it like uh, they're still alive and they're taking it. And so then he goes one by one and knocks the head of each one with the stone and kills all of them. So you see Reshakish had a plan the whole time. He made himself, he, he uh, sold himself to be a gladiator in order to infiltrate and kill all of these thugs. And so he was, uh, I guess, a great hero um, because of that. All right, very interesting. Now, Nefak Ba'ata Yateb Kachil Veshate. Okay, he left, he came back home, and after some time, uh, he, was, uh, he was sitting and eating and drinking as much as he wanted, and he didn't, wasn't saving up money. Uh, to take care of his family, to take care of his future. Now, so this story is actually at the end of his life, uh, which uh, would leave, if we say the first one was at the beginning of his life, that would be a large gap. So it's a little hard to figure out what the chronology is here. Uh, but anyway, uh, maybe this is what he did um, throughout his life, that he didn't care about savings. He says, don't you want something to lie upon? In other words, when you're eventually, when you're old, uh, you know, don't don't you want to save up something so that you can uh, have what to uh, rely on a, a, a pension fund? He says, no. What do I need anything to lie on? My pillow, my my stomach is enough for me, right? I just eat whatever I want now, and I don't worry about the future. Eventually, when he died, so it could be this is uh, this is he, he did the, the story when he was young. And right after he got into the habit of uh, just eating whatever he had then and not saving up, at the end of his life, he had a small amount of saffron. Um, that's all he had left over for all in all of his belongings. And even for that, he lamented that he didn't use up everything that he owned. And he said, oh, see, I have to leave for leave my wealth to others. Right, uh, Psalm 49. 
um, that you know people work hard and you just leave your wealth wealth for others and even though it's just a small amount okay what's the point of the second story is really not clear um, perhaps it means that he showed his uh, his uh, confidence that God would provide and he doesn't have to save from day to day he could use up whatever you know whatever he has just use it and uh, the next day he'll eat something else and he's not worried about the future people that don't have so much faith in God they say like oh nothing I don't know what's gonna happen I have to save a lot of money and so he said right God will take care of me every day he'll take care of my family in the future and didn't have to worry about it all right that's the Mishnah and some interesting stories next Mishnah someone who sells his field to a non-jew we're talking about a field in Israel and this is not good we want the land of Israel to remain in Jewish hands if someone does sell his field to a non-jew then he has to buy every year bikurim and bring them the in other words the original owner even though you sold your land really the land is still holy and although you sold it legally for some purposes uh, nevertheless the, the the you you retain the sanct the land retains the sanctity and you're responsible to go and buy the bikurim every year and this is because that way every year you're gonna have to go spend money to buy the uh, bikurim it will be a yearly reminder that you should should really try to buy the land back and you should not have sold it in the first place and so therefore instead of spending that money every year to buy the Bikurim maybe you will actually go and buy the land back okay that's all one version of the Mishnah there are other versions that seem to be older and original that leave out this Vav and uh, it makes um, important difference in this reading someone who sells his land to a non-Jew if a Jew buys it back then the Jew who buys it back has to bring Bikurim even though the fruit grew while it was under non-Jewish ownership nevertheless once the Jew buys it then he has to bring Bikurim and this would also be Mipnet Tikkun HaOlam a little hard to figure out what's the Tikkun HaOlam but it seems to be the same idea that even though it was under uh, non-Jewish ownership nevertheless it's still liable in Bikurim the non-Jewish ownership does not take away its sanctity and that would be uh, also a reminder that this still has sanctity and it should be uh, best that if it's owned uh, best for it to be owned by a Jew okay that's the Mishnah and now we're going to see an important machloket so Rabbah says that when a non-Jew buys a, a land in Israel that is not a full sale uh, in terms of its halacha. Halachically, we consider it still under the uh, under the ownership of a Jew, such that anything that grows on it, you have to bring maaser and bikurim and everything else, because the pasuk says all the land belongs to me, Hashem, meaning that it still retains its holiness. Therefore, anything that grows while it's uh, under non-Jewish ownership, if someone else would buy, if a Jew would buy that produce, he would have to make sure that somehow Tirumah, Maser, Bikurim is being taken from it. However, the purchase of the non-Jew is effective in terms of usage. 
that the non-Jew can come and he can uh, he can dig it, uh, uh, ditches, caves, whatever he wants, even things that are not very good for the land. Um, that's what he wants to do with it. Then he's allowed to because it says uh, the heavens belong to Hashem, but the earth belongs to humans, and therefore you're selling him the legal right of usage. But he does not take. He does not um, own the halachic uh, um, holiness of the land. And therefore, anything that grows still um, is liable to ma'aser. Not that the non-Jew is going to care, and he's not going to take ma'aser before he eats it. But the point is that any produce that, of, of his land that goes to a Jew, you will have to take ma'aser. That's the opinion of Rabbah. Rabbi El Azar Omer, Rabbi El Azar says the opposite of Rabbah. Even though uh, the non Jew does acquire the land of, of Eretz Israel to the extent of to remove its holiness and remove the obligation of uh, bringing Maser, because it says, when you, regarding Maser, you have to bring Maser of your grain, meaning only if you own it, but not if it's owned by a Jew. So, according to the Biel Azad, in fact, um, uh, this uh, land owned by a non-Jew is not you're not required to bring maaser or bikurim or anything else. Um, but um, the uh, ownership of a non-Jew is not for usage because it says lashem haaris umloa. When we say haaris in the pashat of the pasuk, it's talking about the whole world is uh, belongs to God. Tebel beba. But in this derasha, uh, we're saying haaris meaning the land of Israel all belongs to Hashem, and therefore. Uh, the Nanju can't just use it however he wants, um, but we have to have, you know, proper zoning laws to make sure he's using it in a productive way and not just digging holes in it and ruining it. Okay, so is the opposite. Now we're going to see uh, why is this relevant to us. We're going to see in a few minutes that the Gemara is going to show that this Mishnah seems to support Rabbi El-Azar because the Mishnah says, as a Takana, the rabbis made an enactment and said, listen, if you uh, buy the land from a non-Jew after it all grew by, uh, uh, with the, with the non-Jew and you buy it, you still have to make sure to bring uh, Bikurim. But sounds like that's only because of a Takana. From without the Takana, from the letter of the law, it was it does not have holiness, and you would not have to bring Maaser. And so that would, would support Rabbi Al-Azad against Rabbah. So we're going to bring that as a challenge in a few minutes. Okay, but first, let's explain their Machloket. Rabbi El Azad, who's uh, who is of the opinion that the uh, the uh, Nanju when a Nanju owns land, it is not liable to Maaser and it does not have that holiness anymore. So he interprets Deganecha as he already he already said in his own words that it means your grain is liable to Maaser, but if it belongs to a Nanju, then it's not liable to Maaser. That's how he interprets that pasuk. However, Rabbah is going to interpret differently, and he says, no, don't read it Teganecha, but rather Digunecha, which means your accumulation or your pile. The law is that if a Jew owns uh, land and produce, um, while it's being processed, he doesn't yet have to give Maaser. It's only when he's finished the processing, piles it all up and smooths out the pile, then he's liable to Maaser. So Rabbah is understanding here that if a non-Jew owns land and it grows under his ownership and then a Jew buys it, 
the um, since it's being uh, piled under the Jew, um, he has to bring maaser. Even though he was owned by a non-Jew while it was uh, while it was growing, he can't say, "Oh, it's owned by a non-Jew, so it's exempt." No, because according to Rabbah, it's never exempt. The holiness of the land remains even when the non-Jew owns it, and therefore the Jew who buys it has to then bring maaser when it's piled up. Okay, so that's the source of their machloket. Amaraba, mina and mina la. Raba says, I have a proof from a Mishnah. Ditanan, Mishnah and Pea. Haleket vashikha va pea shel goi, chayavin de maaser, ela imken, hifkir. Now, the law of leket shikha pea, if a Jew owns a farm and uh, they forgot a couple of grains uh, or a whole pile, uh, a, a, a whole uh, a sheaf, um, then it has to be left for the poor, and the corner also has to be left for the poor. Now, these items, uh, when the Jew owns it, he basically is making it hefker. He's saying, listen, any poor person who wants to come and take it, they can come and take these things. Because it's hefker, it's not liable to maaser. The poor person that takes the leket shechan and pe'ah does not have to bring maaser on it because it doesn't belong to him or to anyone um, okay, so that's the that's the basic law. Now this law is teaching that when you have leket shiran of a non-Jew, we're going to analyze what this means. Does that mean that uh, it's uh, the non-Jew owns the land and a Jew took to, uh, took the grain, or the other way around? Um, that a, uh, a Jew owns the land and a non-Jew, a non-Jew took the grain. Okay, we'll see what that means and then we'll understand the proof better. But anyway, the point of the Mishnah is that he, you have to bring Ma'asad, in other words, it's not called Hefker, unless the owner actually makes it Hefker. So let's see, else analyze. If it's talking about a case of that the Jew owns the land, and then he said, okay, here's Pe'ah, anyone can come and take it. And then a Nanju came and took that, uh, whatever, he's poor or, or not poor, he doesn't know the law, whatever. A Nanju takes it. And so in that case, you have to bring uh, Ma'asir, um, be, uh, well, uh, unless he, the owner, makes it Hefker. That wouldn't make any sense because the owner already made it Hefker by designating this is Pe'ah. This is Shicha. He said, whoever wants to takes it. So he already made it Hefker. This line of the Mishnah wouldn't make sense. Elalav de Goy. Yisrael, rather it must be that talking about a non-Jew owns the land and uh, poor Jews are coming as it's non-Jew even though he's not but I guess he's a nice guy and he likes this law and he leaves a corner for uh, poor people and the poor people come and take it they have to bring Ma'asir. Why? Because when the non-Jew uh, designates the corner, he's not really know, he doesn't really know all the laws. He's not actually doing it halachically and making it hefker necessarily. He may just be saying, okay, this is, uh, you know, like you Jews do. Here, here's a corner. Um, so some Jews come and take it. Now this is actually owned and owned by a uh, by, by a non-Jew. And nevertheless, the Mishnah says, Chayavin be ma'asir. So we can prove from here that grain, that even though it's owned by a non-Jew, you have to bring, you have to take ma'asir. It retains its holiness. That's a proof for Rabbah. Um, unless the non-Jew makes it hefked, if the non-Jew knows how to do that and makes it hefked and everyone can take it, then, okay, that, then fine. It'll be same as if a Jew owns it and makes it hefked. Since it's not owned by anybody, you don't have to bring Maser. But if the Jew, if the non-Jew keeps ownership of it, then the if the non-Jew keeps ownership of it, then the Jew who takes it has to bring Maser. Proof for Rabbah. 
uh, right, Tamad Hifkir, Halo Hifkir Hayav. He's only, it's only uh, exempt if he makes it Hefkir, uh, but if he keeps on, if the Nanju keeps ownership over it, then you have to bring um, Maaser. So you see that the land retains its holiness even whilst owned by a non-Jew, and Jews that, that take that produce have to bring Maaser. That seems like a good proof. Um, and that's going to be a challenge to the Biel Azad. What are we going to do? La Leolam Disrael Veliktin Hu Goy. Udekamad Hamifkiri Vekaimi, Nehidim Mifkiri Data de Israel, Adata de Goy, Mimifkiri. The Biel Azad could say, No, I interpret this Mishnah that is talking about the Jew owns the land, and then some non-Jew came and took some of the grain. Um, and it would be Chayab Maaser. Uh, why, uh, why? Now, even though you asked the question and you said, wait, it's already uh, considered hefker, because the Jew said, this is for any poor people to take. Yeah, when the Jew made it hefker, he had in mind that poor Jewish people would take it. Generally, that's who's going to come around. He didn't make it hefker for a non-Jew to take it, and so therefore, from the non-Jew's perspective, he took something that's still owned by a Jew. Since it's still owned, Maaser uh, has to be taken. Not that the non-Jew's going to care about the Maaser, but if that non-Jew then would, let's say, sell it to a Jew, the Jew would say, where'd you get that from? Oh, I took it from Pe'ah, from that Jew's, uh, Jew's garden. He says, oh, you took it from Pe'ah, but the, that owner didn't have in mind that it should be Hefker for you, so he still has ownership, and therefore it is still liable um, in, uh, in Maaser, and therefore there's no proof from here for Rabba's position. That's how Rabbi Elazar Rabbi defends himself. Okay, another proof. Tashema. Yisrael shalakach sadeh migoy ad shelo hevi ashlish vechazaru mechada lo meshe hevi ashlish chayevet b'maaser shekeva nitchayeva. Nitchayeva in, lo nitchayeva lo. A Jew that buys a field from a non-Jew when the grain is not yet a third grown. And then he sells it back to the non-Jew after a third is grown. A third, that's a key time when it becomes a third grown. That's when a, uh, a, a liability for responsibility for Maaser kicks in. Okay, even though you don't have to actually give the Maaser until, um, until you uh, finish processing and it fills the pile, but it's important to have ownership over it at that point that it grows that critical uh, step. Um, so even though he sold it back to a non-Jew, he already became liable to bring Maaser because the Jew owned it during that time. So we see that only because he owned it during that time, that's why he is liable. But if he didn't own it during that time, then he would not be liable. This is a proof for to be El Azar that not, um, land owned by a non-Jew is not is not liable in Maaser, and it's a challenge to Raba. How is Raba going to deal with this? Baraita hacha b'maiskinan besuria v'kasabar kibush yachid l'ashemekibush. Raba could say this Baraita is talking about not land in the not land in Israel, but land in Syria. The law in Syria is that it's midrabanan. The rabbi said you have to take to the man Maaser from this land in Syria um, if you're Jewish. But that Rabbanan only extends to Jewish-owned land, non-Jewish-owned land in Syria. The rabbis did not make uh, such a law. So if it's owned by non-Jews in Syria, then it does not have to at all. Even Rabbah would agree that if it's owned by a non-Jew, there's no need to bring it. And that's so he says, oh, this Barata could be talking about in Syria. All right, a similar uh, question and answer. He, uh, again, Tashema. Yisrael ve'goy shalachusadeh beshutafut. You have a Jew and a non-Jew that jointly own a field. 
The, so now, what are you going to do with the produce? Is it, do you have to bring taruma to the mama said? So the law is a machloket. The B said, all of the produce, every single grain is a mixture of tebel and holin. The part that's owned by a Jew is tebel, meaning you have to bring to the mama said. The part that's owned by a non-Jew is holin. You don't have to bring it. Okay, that's according to the B. Now, um, so according to the B, you're going to have to still take to the mama said from other produce that's of the same type because it's only half. You can't use full tebel to redeem half tebel, and so you'll have to do that. Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel Omer shel goy patur v'shel Yisrael hayav. Rashbag says, um, oh, here's what you do. You let it grow, and then the two uh, uh, partners are going to eventually split it, and they'll say, here, you get this pile, and you get that pile. Once you split it, then it will retroactively be uh, clarified through berera, that the pile that the uh, that ends up in the ownership of the non-Jew will be holin. You don't have to bring to the mama said, and the pile that will belong to the Jew will be fully tebel and chayab and tiruma and maaser. So that's the machloket about how exactly you're going to split it up. So now with Gemara comments, the only machloket here is whether you can retro, you can say there is retroactive definition. Um, and so the second opinion of Rashbag says, yes, you can retroactively designate it. Whereas the B says, no, there is no retroactive designation since you both jointly own it. So then every single grain is going to be half tebel and half holin. But you see that they agree on the basic point that um, if a non-Jew owns land in Israel, he does not have to bring ma'asir, right? The non-Jewish ownership removes that sanctity, and uh, and no one has to bring a ma- uh, has to bring ma'asir. This is a proof for the opinion of Rabbi Elazar and against Rabbah. Rabbah, how are you going to interpret this source? Hachaname besuria vekasabar kibush yachid la kibush. You can say the same thing. We're talking about this whole source is talking about land in Syria. And uh, because it was only um, conquered by an individual, by David HaMelech, but was not part of the national um, uh, borders that uh, was conquered by the entire public, by the entire nation. Therefore, it's not an official conquest. It was never fully annexed as as part of Israel. And so it doesn't have the Deoraita um, status of the land of Israel. Rather, it's only Midrabanan that the rabbis said, listen, it's uh, kind of like a part of Israel and we're going to treat it with that sanctity. And if a Jew owns it, owns land in Syria, he has to bring to the Ma'am said, but if a non-Jew owns it, does not have to. And therefore, um, everyone would agree, Rabbah as well, that in this case that it's in Syria, the half that's owned by a non-Jew will not be required to bring Ma'asir. Amar Rav Chiyabar Avin, Tashema, HaMocher Sadeo Legoy, Lokech Mevi Bikurim, Mipne Tikun HaOlam, Mipne Tikun HaOlam, In Medoraita La. Here's the moment we've been waiting for. Rabbi Chiyabar Avin brings our Mishnah as a challenge and says, the Mishnah says, if you sell your field to a non-Jew, um, uh, anyone who buys the field will have to bring Bikurim. This, this uh, proof here really makes sense only if you don't have a Vav. And so, uh, at least makes sense better if you don't have the Vav. So that seems to be the original reading. Um, anyone who buys the field will have to bring Bikurim 
because of tikkun olam, meaning that's only because of tikkun olam that the rabbi said, listen, if you purchased the field from a non-Jew in the, uh, in the middle of the, of while it was growing, then you should bring bikurim. That means it's only because of the enactment. You would not have to, even though the non-Jew owned it, um, because the non-Jew owned it, he re- removes the sanctity of it, and on the Doraita level, you would not have to bring Ma'asir. This is, again, a proof for to be a Lazad against Rabbah, right? Rabbah, how can you, according to Rabbah, you should say that on the Doraita level, the Jew who buys it has to bring the Bikurim. Amar Ravasheh is going to come to the rescue of Rabbah, and explained, actually, there were two steps in this enactment. The original law, in fact, was, as Rabbah said, if a Jew buys land from a non-Jew, um, then he has, to, he has to bring Maaser, because it was liable to Maaser the whole time. The land of Israel retains its sanctity, a non-Jew is buying it, does not remove the sanctity. The right level, you have to. However, The rabbi saw that the people that would buy such buy land from uh, non-Jews or buy produce from non-Jews, they would bring the Bikurim and say the whole Mikra uh, Bikurim, right? Thank you for this produce, for the land that you, you brought us to this land, Hashem, and you gave us this produce. And so, they, since they, they're bringing Bikurim, they reason that, you see, the land remains holy, even though it's sold to a non-Jew. And so, they had no problem selling their land to a non-Jew. Okay, so what? The non-Jew owns it. But the land is still sanctified, and so people were um, were more easily selling their land to non-Jews. So the rabbi said, "This is not good. You know, we're going to make a takana that you, um, if the land is owned by a non-Jew, a Jew is not allowed to uh, bring the bikurim, right, to show them, and then they'll feel bad. Oh, look at this fruit; it's grew in Israel, and with no one saying bikurim, and we can't say mikra bikurim, and we can't bring the bikurim. Oh, we really feel bad then, because then they'll have a sense that it's losing its sanctity." So that was the takana. The point of the takana, even though it's really required to do bikurim, the rabbi said, Sheva Alte said, no, don't bring bikurim so that you will feel bad and try and hopefully not sell the land in the first place. However, this takana backfired. Then they saw, look, people, even though they feel bad about it, some people are down and out and they don't have money to pay back and they have to sell the land to a non-Jew. And so they end up selling the land to a non-Jew and no one is buying it back because uh, they say, well, okay, now it belongs to the non-Jew, so now it's not sanctified anymore and uh, they forget about it so they made another takana and they said let's go back to the original law and say that actually you have to bring mikra bikurim because we want we want people to stay connected to it and therefore if they go and they uh, when they buy the the land uh, or buy produce from the non-jew they bring bikurim they'll say oh see the land still has has sanctity and now look it's being owned by a non-jew but it's sanctified you know what we should really try hard to buy the land back so that we can have full ownership and uh, bring everything properly. And so this was a takana is in fact according to Rabbah it isn't a takana even though the takana is the same as the original Doraita law but in the meantime it went through a reverse takana that takana didn't work and so they brought the uh, and the 
the takana that Mishnah is talking about is actually an undoing of the takana of the first takana to go back to the original law. But in fact, yes, it does. It is uh, uh, required on the Doraita level also to for the Jew to bring maaser on produce, even though it was owned by a non-Jew. Okay, good. Now another machloket itmar. Someone who sells his field only for the produce. In other words, I keep ownership of the land itself, and I'm selling you the right to uh, to work the land and to take the produce for this season or for the next ten seasons. Right? You get I'm, I'm uh, pre-selling to you all everything that will grow on the land from now. Well, so who brings, what about the Bikurim? Well, the owner of the land can't bring the Bikurim because he doesn't own the fruit. So rather, the buyer who buys the fruit, he can bring Bikurim, and uh, and uh, Rabbi Yochanan says he brings it and he can recite the Mikra Bikurim. Even though in the Mikra Bikurim it says, the land that you gave me, he doesn't really own the land, but Rabbi Yochanan says, nevertheless, he can still say it because he owns the land for the purpose of the fruit. Rashakish says he can he has to bring Bikurim because he has to have to bring Bikurim, but you can't say you can't recite my this land that you've given me because he doesn't own the land. Okay, that's a machloket. Rabbi Yochanan explains further um, that you can recite the whole Mikra Bikurim because ownership of the fruit is like ownership of the land. If you all have if you have ownership over anything that grows on the land, it means for that season, basically I own the land. Um, so I'm kind of renting the land, so it's it's in my my possession right now, and then it'll go back to you whenever the agreement is over. Shakis says, "No, it's not the same. You got the fruit. Okay, go go take the fruit, enjoy it. But the land is owned by the owner of the land, so the uh, the guy who has the fruit cannot say thank you, Hashem, for the land that you have given me." Okay, challenge. Rabbi Yochanan challenges Reshakish from this pasuk that uh, says in the end of Mikra Bikurim, it says, You should enjoy all the good that Hashem has given to you, Ul Betecha, and for your and to your household. Now, the household is going to come to teach that uh, you have the following case. A wife brings into the marriage nechse melog, she brings in land. Nechse melog, melog means she retains ownership of the land throughout the marriage, and at the end of the marriage, she can take the land back itself. So she is the owner of the land. While they're married, the husband has the right to take the fruits. So this is exactly the same as the case of the machloket. And uh, and uh, and yet, we learn from this pasuk that, that the husband brings me brings the bikurim and he recites it. He can recite it. Thank you for the land that you've given me, even though the husband doesn't own the land. And so Rabbi Yochanan says, see, that's a good proof, a good proof for me that someone who only owns the fruit but not the land still recites Mikra Bikurim. What are you going to do about that, Reshakish? Reshakish says, that's the exception to the rule, precisely because the Pasuk says, goes out of its way to say that, listen, if you own the fruit, but the land is part of your household, because it's owned by your wife, 
then since it's all part of one household, so then yes, you're you're like the owner and that's good enough and you can bring and you can say but we need a pasuk to go out of its way to say only in this case, but otherwise if you're not married to the owner, then you cannot say so it actually works perfectly for the shakish. Okay, that's one version of this exchange. Another version flips it around. In this version, the Shakish is actually as challenging Rabbi Yochanan. The Pasuk says, and that means that a husband can say even though his wife owns the, the owns the land. Um, so you see that only in this case, because we have a special exception that says Ulbetecha, that's why the husband can say Mikrabikurim. But in any other case where it, they're not married and one person owns the land and another person buys the right to the fruit, the person that owns the right to the fruit cannot say Mikrabikurim. So Reshakir says that's a proof for my position. What are you gonna do about that, Rabbi Yochanan? Rabbi Yochanan says, I treat that not as an exception, but that's the rule. Right? Ulbetecha teaches it in this case, and it's the same in all cases. Anytime you have um, not only because they're in the same household, anytime you have some one person who owns the land, one person who takes the fruit, the person who has the fruit can say Mikrabi Kurim and actually learn it from this very source. So that's interesting, right? They both agree on that one, what that one pasuk means, what that one word means. But is that the rule or is that the exception to the rule? Okay, and now, Re'itibe. Um, so one last challenge um, of Resh Lakish against Rabbi Yochanan. Here we have a Baraita that says if someone was a husband, he is bring he's on the way to bring the Bikurim um, uh, of the Bikurim of his wife's land, the, the land of the the Melog of his wife's land that she brought into the marriage, but he has the right to the fruit. And he is coming on the way to bring his Bikurim to Yerushalayim. And he hears all of in the middle of his trip that his wife has died. Now, as soon as his wife dies, he inherits his wife's uh, a property. So now the land belongs to him. So therefore, he can bring the Bikurim and he can recite, Thank you, Hashem, for the land that you have given me. So what do we can learn from this Braita? Only if she died, then he can say the Mikra Bikurim. But if she did not die, then he cannot say it. And so that is a challenge to Rebi Yohanan. Um, so we can answer for Rebi Yohanan, who had the Afagav de Lometa. Now the truth is, even if she didn't die, he would still be able to say it. Um, so why does the Braita say only if she died? No, it's saying also if she died, and we have to learn, learn that law. Not only if, uh, if, the, if she's alive, then the, the husband can say Mikrabikurim, but also if she died, because otherwise I might have thought, Barchanina says a, a rule that if someone sent um, his Bikurim with an agent and the agent died on the way and then someone else will actually bring the fruit at, in, in, within the Bet and present it to the Kohen then he cannot recite it. Now if the agent did the whole 
whole thing, then that would be fine because you can send an agent to do to do uh, this mitzvah, but it has to be the same person. Since the pasuk says velakachta, you will take it and you will bring it. So the person that takes it along the way can also present it to the kohen, um, but it has to be the same one person. If one if the shaliach does half the job and then dies. The one who finishes the job cannot say the mikra bikurim. And, and now, I might have thought that I should apply that to this case, where you have the husband, he is on his way as a kind of like a shaliach on behalf of the wife, because she owns the land, he, but he's, she's bringing it. And he, if he did the whole thing, fine, he could say mikra bikurim. Um, however, if um, uh, uh, and uh, however, if she dies in the middle, now he is no longer acting as a shaliach, but now he's acting as the owner. So I might have thought, oh, look, see, it's not the same person. It's the same person physically, but it's not in the same role that he brought it there and is actually giving it to the kohen. I might have thought that if she dies in the middle, then he cannot say it. And that's why this Badaita has to come and teach me that even if she dies in the middle, still he can say it. But it doesn't mean that if she didn't die, he couldn't say it. If, she, if she's alive, also he can say it. And therefore, we resolve the question according to everyone. Baruch Adonai Le'olam. Amen ve'amen.